Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
noisier. It is. Well, you know, I live by the airport, so it's always noisier at home. It is good to be back home. Hi, everyone. I'm back. I know. It's been, I don't know, a gazillion and a half fucking years since I've been on the podcast here. Missed you all. Uh, I know some of you missed me because you've told me so. I do appreciate that. Because, you know, like Peter Gabriel says, I love to be loved. Uh, that was John Elliott, uh, with a song, a new song called Closer to There. Uh huh. Yes. Logan says yes to that. Uh, another great John Elliott song. Well, welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to, uh, my voice, uh, here in my head. Now, last week I was going to come back, but, um, I woke up and Brenda Vaccaro had taken over my whole body. I had one of those weird things, like I got back from New York and was feeling fine and was kind of keeping the energy up and everything like that. And then my body went, <laughs> yeah, you don't get to do that. Uh, and so it put me in bed for five days. And uh, I thought, well, I could do the podcast and sound like Brenda Vaccaro, which would be fun, actually. We, we That would have been fun. Uh, but I just, my brain, you know how it is when it's your head is filled with snot. There's something about your brain. Something does to your brain thinking, how does that happen? I wonder. I'm sure someone could tell me this um, thing, and I'm sure you will all later. So I hope you're all great. Uh, New York. So as you know, I went to New York for two weeks and did my show at the Cherry Lane Theater uh, as part of the All for One Theater Festival, which I think has still got some shows going this week. Uh, I think it's their last weekend. So check it out. Uh, just some outstanding talent on that stage. Uh, and I got to meet a lot of the artists and their solo stories and just really, really cool stuff. Solo theater is amazing. Um, and it was amazing for me, too. It was a 20-year dream come true, 20 years ago-ish. Uh, I saw two different people on stage. I saw Spalding Gray doing uh, Swimming to Cambodia, and which is interesting. Peter, who's here today, uh, another connection. Uh, and um, saw that and saw Karen Finley do her performance piece, uh, which was very controversial at the time because she was spreading yams and chocolate syrup all over her bare breasts on stage. Uh, but both of them were so raw and so real and so personal. And I said to myself, oh, wow, maybe I can't or don't want to be a sitcom star. And no, I don't want to be a stand-up, but oh my God, I think I want to go do that. And you know, when you want to go do something like that, you ultimately want to do it in New York. Because I mean, you know, I love LA and I love the West Coast and it is what it is. But let me tell you, man, if you're a performer, New York is where it's at. <laughs> and so there I was on a stage in New York and working with incredible theater professionals who ran the shows and ran the theater um, and ran the festival. And those amazing New York audiences who uh, really get it. And uh, so it was it was a dream come true. I just pinched myself every day, every time I got on the one uh, from 79th and Broadway all the way down to the village to, to go to the theater. I was like, oh my God, I'm a New Yorker. Look, I'm going shopping and only buying this many groceries because I have to carry them six blocks to my house. Uh, and uh, my d uh, dear woman, who I will not say her name on the air, <clears throat> so her doesn't get in uh, trouble with her landlord, sublet me her apartment for two weeks. 
amazing apartment. Thank you very much. You know who you are. And uh, yeah, so lived the life. I was right around the corner from Zabar's. I mean, you know, it was like fucking New York and every, you know, walked to the National His- Natural History Museum, you know, walked down Riverside Park, uh, saw all of my New York friends. I don't think I missed a single one this time. It was great. Even had a little polymind commune party in East Coast version, New York version. And uh, uh, my favorite moment, I loved it. All my friends were there and a lot of L.A. friends happened to be in town and they were there too. And But my favorite moment was um, two of my dear friends, <clears throat> younger friends of mine, uh, both uh, New Yorkers. Uh, one is Angel, who's probably listening live right now. And the other one is Justin. Uh, we were at the party and right before the party was kind of ending, um, my friend Tony Hendra came in. And uh, this is the man who played the manager in um, oh my oh my god I can't my brain just fucking went blank, you know the faux documentary about the rock and roll band with uh, uh, Christopher Guest and what is it called? Thank you, Spinal Tap. T- Tony Hendra played the manager in Spinal Tap, and so there's these twenty something kids at this party, and he, he Tony Hendra walks in, and they're like, oh my god. Is that Tony Hendra? And I'm like, I just love you that you know who Tony Hendra is. Thank God there's hope for the planet. 20-somethings. So that was like one of my favorite moments. Uh, so we had a blast, had a great time, um, learned a bunch of things, uh, learned how to do uh, the express versus the local subway. So I totally felt like a New Yorker at that point. That was very cool. Uh, and also um, learned that I can do a show on four hours sleep and that uh, it actually ended up being a really great show. My last show, uh, I only had four hours sleep uh, and I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to forget. My, I like, kept going to the stage manager. Okay, you got to be really close to the script because I'm, I know I'm going to go up my lines or whatever. I didn't miss a comma, I don't think, that night. It was great. Or that day. And then the cherry on the top of the whole New York trip was I got to officiate Suzanne Wong's wedding. And this was the greatest wedding I've ever attended because it was part wedding, part comedy sketch. Uh, Her fiance, who is now her husband, Jay, came down the aisle to the Dick Van Dyke theme and did the perfect trip at the perfect moment because they're both hams. And then I realized, you know, that I'm like, oh, I'm kind of the straight man here. And I got to do mugging and faces. And oh, my God, we had so much fun. It was a blast. It was a blast. Thank you, Suzanne, for asking me to do that. Uh, Just a great, great thing. But I'm glad to be home. I have some big news. I can't announce it yet until it's absolutely official. And the officials tell me that I can officially announce it. But I have some cool news coming up in the next few weeks that came out of my New York experience. Um, uh, It's so big, this news in my life that I'm walking around the last 24 hours really doesn't feel real to me yet. But it is supposedly a lot of people have told me it is. And I know it is so but it's just strange. We'll talk about that hopefully next week or the week after. Uh, So yes, it's great to be home. And uh, of course, of course, I wrote an essay for today. I wouldn't leave you people hanging. Don't you worry, even though I was a little out of practice and woke up this morning going, what the fuck am I going to write about? But you know me, I always figure something out. So This is a little piece that I wrote for us today called The Turn. Did you feel it? The turn? Did you? Feel the turn! Feel the turn! 
you know, that shift, that thing that happened while we were all casually lollygagging through October, bemoaning that, like, siren at every checkout stand in every supermarket in America called Halloween candy that was whispering, buy me, eat me, buy me, eat me, while at the same time, big box stores had the gall to display fake Christmas trees in hopes of jump-starting their holiday sales two months early. Did you feel it? Yes, that, the turn. The oh-so-subtle turn of the placement of Earth in relation to the sun. The turn that shifted us all over some invisible line that made it so very clear, boom, fall has arrived. Whenever this time of year approaches, I at first resist. I want my light, my late-in-the-day light to last forever. I want to feel young. I want to be an endless summer. I want the hope of anything goes to last forever. Like a kid who looks, who looks up to see the streetlights coming on and knows that it's time to finally go home for dinner and that all the games of tag are to be suspended until first light, a little part of me dies. Mom, can't we just have five more minutes? But then I remember the gift, the gift of what is about to unfold in the next few months. The gift of stillness and silence, the gift of depth and soul. Okay, some of you may have just done a spit take, laughed and thought, stillness, silence, depth, soul, what must this woman be smoking? Does she not know that the American human equivalent of the great clamoring, chaotic and ruthless African wildebeest migration, what we call the holidays, is about to begin in this fine capitalistic society? Doesn't this woman know that in order to be a great patriot, there will be no stillness, silence, depth, or soulfulness allowed in the general vicinity of this or any other holiday season? Yes, exactly. I I do know that. I do. Ever so exactly. And that is why I love this time of year. It is an opportunity of true revolution, a time when I am able to stand against the rush of culture, turn down the din of silver bells, silver bells inside my head, and just be. (sighs) Deep breath, everyone. Deep, deep breath. Just be. This is the time of year when the light of the day fades quickly and what light is left during the day is not the light of summer full of hope and forever, but it is a slightly sad light, one that has just enough energy to light the way from here to there, but not much else. It is a light that triggers to the flora and fauna all around us. Uh, Yes, folks, that even includes us that it is time to slow down. This light is like a a friendly neighbor that invites you on the porch and says, take a load off, put your feet up, sit a spell. Sit a spell. Sit with yourself. Sit and take in all that has happened in the hustle and bustle and let it begin to stew. These next few months, take the time to bring into your heart all the people, places, and things that have made up this year and hold them each as a prized possession. Who came into your life? Who was gone? What amazing opportunity did you grasp? What life dream fell apart before your eyes? Did you get a health scare? Did you meet the love of your life? 
Slowly let the clanging of this year's goings and comings find a place within your heart, mind, body, soul. Time has passed. Let yourself catch up to it a bit. Let yourself, your psyche, take all those triggered neurons in your brain and forge the new pathway of being of who you are now. Find some time to draw some doodles or mandalas, move your body in a free dance, sing gibberish in the shower and hike through the woods. Help your mind body to integrate all the doings into your being. I mean, we are human beings and not human doings in the end. Draw, dance, sing, hike, and breathe through it all these next few months so that when the moment when we all reach late December and the least amount of light shines on us here in the Northern Hemisphere, our beings will be ready to sit in perfect stillness, in complete silence, in the depth of knowing and in the soulfulness of our lives. And we will be fully prepared for that miracle of new light that will reach us and something new will dawn. I'm embarrassed to say this relationship works because we never talk. Except for make me some eggs Bacon and toast And aren't you gonna wear socks To be honest and true What I like about you Is that you're always high You don't care if we never Get out of the house And neither do I What silences me You were with someone else I snatched you up for myself Like the last piece of meat Not that you didn't Jump at the chance Old dog that you are said get in the car this must be the way we want it this must be what we need I'll make the martinis and you fire up the weed I think the talking things through is overrated I'd rather be blue and medicated It took a few years 
and buckets of tears for me to understand why your ex never once even complained when I took her man. She was patiently waiting for a sucker like me to come on to the scene. Of course, you're all familiar with that one. That is Tracy Newman, Fire Up the Weed. And, well, I had to play it because, well, today we'll be discussing the Mary Jane. Yes, the marijuana. So, um, you know, I've had a weird, interesting life. I went to an interesting high school where uh, fascinating people went. And some of us made it out alive and some of us didn't. <laughs> and uh, my guest today, Peter McGuire, is one of those people who did make it out alive. Not only like made it out alive, but like went off to become like a freaking scholar, you know, like one of those guys who teaches shit places. I'll just read his little bio here on the book. It's rather lovely. Peter Guire is the author of Law and Order and Facing Death in Cambodia. Oh, yes. Cheery subject there. He is a historian and former war crimes investigator whose writing has been published in the International Herald Tribune, New York Times, the Independent Newsday, and Boston Globe. He has taught law and war theory at Columbia University and Bard College. And he is right now on a West Coast book tour for his brand new book called Tie Stick, Surfers, Scammers, and the Untold Story of the Marijuana Trade. Welcome, Peter. Great to be here, Kelly. Uh, you told me about this book. When was that when we saw each other? Was that seven years ago about? Yeah, we had a little interruption. Yeah, yeah, you did. You <laughs> did. But I we were like, this book about Tyst. And I'm like, okay. And here it is in my hot little hands. And I've been reading it all week and uh, could not put it down. <laughs> Literally, until yesterday when I was completely overwhelmed with something else. But I was like page turning the first two days. I was, Bob's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I just, okay, I'm just going to, and then I would like read a certain part to him. I'm like, you've got to hear this part. You've got to hear what happened to these people. It's an amazing story because, uh, well, first of all, if anyone grew up uh, who's listening who grew up on the West Coast, I mean, I don't know, did tie sticks make it to the East Coast? They did in small amounts. In small amounts. This was really a California, West Co Oregon, Washington phenomena that happened in the, well, all of the 70s, really, late 60s. Through the, it begins with the Vietnam War right. and the soldiers bringing it back. And then the war winds down by about 73, 74, and the boats start coming across. And, <laughs> and the boats get bigger and bigger and bigger. And bigger. It's, I mean, that's one interesting part of this 
it's it's so interesting how the micro fits with the macro of this because in reading this book like the macro part is like really this is such a great uh peek into how the counterculture of the 60s and then through the 70s and then how it turned into this dark thing in the 80s, you know, like how the culture really was like this free floating thing and these ideas. And then it all got very serious. And it's it just it's represented completely in this too. the whole I mean, you know, the people who I mean, there's just this one statistic here was like, uh, about like, you know, at the during the 60s, surfers and tourists were the main smugglers of weed from Asia into Initially from Mexico. From Mexico into the... So, yeah, the surfers uh, learn their trade craft by going down to, to Ensenada to, to, to for the weekend, go surfing and stick a few kilos in the panels <laughs> of Mom's Country Squire wagon and bring it back. And it just grows from there. It's just... It is amazing. So what is the connection between... Why it is, why was the surfer culture such a perfect culture to to kind of connect to this drug smuggling? I mean, how, how did how did that work? Why was it so? Well, it was mainly marijuana, mm-hmm. um, and and most of my narrators avoided cocaine. Um, while they may have done it recreationally, they they didn't traffic in it. Yes, um, but. Surfers wanted to live the endless summer. And in order to live the endless summer, you can't have a full-time job. Right, You need right. to be able to drop everything. So in a few nervous weeks, you can make all the money you need. To, in a year. Yeah. For the year. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And and they were already uh, living in places where uh, good weed was being grown. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were going to chasing the, the, the perfect wave. Well, it's interesting because it's it's sort of a story of pyrrhic victories on the part of the U.S. government, where they clamp down in Afghanistan, and that pushes this the scammers, mm-hmm. which are the early hippie smugglers, further east, and they wind up in Bali because Bali has great surf, and then they begin to realize that Thailand has this unbelievable pot, right? And the infrastructure left over from the Vietnam War, yeah. And so <laughs> there's everything. And so the first loads are really going from Thailand to Bali into Northwest Australia, mm-hmm. and in small amounts, yeah. You know, suitcases, coolers, things like that. Yeah, some of the cool things they came up with to uh, they would line the suitcases in such a way that they would be able to well i know the hash oil that was yeah. that was that afghanistan they were yeah. doing that when they were creating the hash oil and they would just make like liquid reservoir around these suitcases yes. and then fill it up with just normal suitcase yeah, stuff samsonites walk right through customs and the surfers had the subject matter expertise with fiberglass with the fiberglass yes so they could mold these samsonites my my co-author was the master of them <laughs> mike and, ritter yeah yeah and he had bladders inside you know and uh and and you know he made a small fortune at the time yeah he also got busted in canada yes um, you know they were a little suspect when he landed in canada in the middle of winter right. in tropical clothing but right. Okay, well, he didn't plan ahead enough, yeah. obviously. Live and learn. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next time, pack a parka. <laughs> so we won't be touring in Canada. No, no, no you won't be touring in Canada. Uh, before we get uh, even further into this, I- I'm just overall so curious. I mean, you, you know, your story is is 
you know, kind of a West LA kid's story. You know, you were a surfer kid, Santa Monica Canyon, you know, we all hung out there. I hung out there. That's where I certainly took a, a good amount of bong hits <laughs> at Rustic Canyon Park. Sure. <laughs> Hanging out with the guys. Uh, and you were a surfer, you know, and I was kind of on the fringe of that. I was never into the surfing thing, but and I, I don't, you know, I didn't go down to State Beach a lot. But um, so here you are, you have this kind of really lovely upper middle class upbringing, you know, and, and but but I, there's a great line you talk about, um, which is uh, coming of age in the odd, rootless rubble of the 1960s. Boy, Peter, does that fucking say it all about our childhood? <laughs> It's hard to believe that, you know, I wouldn't even say we were raised by wolves. I, that's what we, I usually say to you people. Know, we I, were the wolves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old boys now, and mm. I look back at what I was doing. I mean, I, I smoked my first pot at 10 years old, mm -hmm. and it was a tie stick oh my God. that my... That, that we didn't even break up. I don't even think we broke it up. We wrapped it in a piece of school, oh. a three-ring binder paper. Oh, my God. And, and just, just the biggest spleef ever, going, man. Do you feel anything? No, I don't feel anything yet. And we got so stoned, I don't think I smoked pot again for about three years. And, um, yeah, I, I was briefly scared straight, but yeah. that <laughs> didn't last. No, 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 not, not in our neighborhoods. No, no, no. But I'm just so curious, how did this fascination with, I mean, you know, one of the things, the first things you did once you got your doctorate was, you know, documenting the, uh, the war atrocities of the Khmer, Khmer Rouge. I mean, what, what fascinated you about or does fascinate you about Southeast Asia and, and what went on there in, in the last five decades? Well, my great-grandfather was a judge at Nuremberg, oh. and um, I had studied under Brigadier General Telford Taylor at Columbia, who was the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg, mm. and um, I got my PhD when I was 28, and the idea of going into teaching for the next 50 <laughs> years, I think I would have rather played Russian roulette. Right. And so, actually, I did play Russian you roulette. Went I went to Cambodia. <laughs> And uh, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, I remember I had uh, two friends who were working as reporters. They had found the negatives uh, of from a prison that about 20,000 people had gone into and less than 20 had survived. Jesus Everybody Christ. had their picture taken and, the, and many have these forced confessions Um and I remember taking them to my PhD advisor and saying, geez, this looks like war crimes to me. What about you? And he kind of said, what do you think, dumb fuck? You know, <laughs> you've only been studying this stuff for the last five years. And, oh, geez, you think I should go? Well, what do you think? I don't know. Like there's a pot of gold in front of you. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. And at the time, Cambodia to me was the most glaring atrocities mm -hmm. since World War II. Yeah. They were unaccounted for. The UN basically rewarded the perpetrators of genocide, and there was this kind of void, and no one was even documenting it. Mm. The, the Khmer Rouge, the people who committed the atrocities, were revising their history mm -hmm. and saying the Vietnamese had done it. So my initial intention was historical accountability right. to prevent revisionism. And in the process, I knew how to build a war crimes case. And then I was finding the survivors from the prison, the guards, the executioner. Eventually, I found the photographer. And that's all wow. in my book, Facing Death in Cambodia. Yeah. So 
Um, it was actually in the course of that research that I stumbled across the confessions of four Americans who were captured and killed in this prison as well. And um, people said, oh, you know, they were intelligence agents. They were this, they were that. And I took one look at their confessions and I said, these guys were pot smugglers. I mean, <laughs> you know, they were from, wow. you know, they were from uh, one group was from Long Beach. Another group was from Santa Barbara. They had all migrated to Maui. Yep. And, you know, they were trying to do what many did at that time. They were fairly amateurish. Yeah. Trying to fill a sailboat. But the South, you know, that period of time in Southeast Asia, you had the boat people. You had the most extreme stretch of pirate activity mm. in the entire world. So... You know, the idea that you would sail into those waters at that point in time was truly terrifying. I mean, my co-author, Mike Ritter, uh, was a remarkable guy because he grew up in Santa Barbara, was a surfer, wound up in Thailand, started smuggling in Afghanistan, migrated to Thailand, and he would contract Thai pirates and captain their trawlers Mm. out into the open ocean and rendezvous with the American motherships. And transfer the loads. And uh, yeah, just incredible. You know, as I said yesterday to someone, these guys were the true capitalists. Yeah. I mean, it was all in. And there was no crying to Uncle Sam for bailout dollars if it went (laughs) pear-shaped. You know, these Wall Street guys are pussies, man. They've truly they, Yeah, they've ruined capitalism. This is like yeah. state sponsored socialist economics now, <laughs> right, you know. Right. It's all game set match. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean these are these guys were true pioneers. And it you know, it was so interesting the 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 ride you take the reader through because you you know, you really do you start us off in the sixties and really talking about just what was happening in the culture, in the drug culture, you know, and here in California specifically, and uh, that whole commune scene down in Laguna yeah, with the, the Brotherhood. brotherhood. Yeah. Wow. Remarkable. Remarkable. I mean, <laughs> the amount of uh, – there was this sense of like um, – there, because there were no real the, – the, the government hadn't figured out a lot of these drugs yet and had figured out what was even going on at the time. Right. It was just a free-for-all for people and and people were just out to have you know fun and everything. And yet, like you said, these guys were capitalists because these guys were figuring out how to well, make a business out of one it. One thing that was truly interesting about the Brotherhood and sets them almost apart in, and who were they? Tell us a little bit about they were they were middle class kids from Anaheim that were completely disillusioned with the American dream, basically. Mm-hmm. And they found LSD and Timothy Leary, the founder of the Brotherhood, stole his first LSD at gunpoint, and they they were like car club greasers. <laughs> and so uh, weird. Yeah, and then they took LSD. And had this um, completely transformative experience. Mm. And there's a great book about the Brotherhood written by Nick Shu, the uh, editor of the Orange County Weekly, called Orange Sunshine. But I would say the Brotherhood was a true utopian um, that almost fits into the you know the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening yes. in American history. They weren't driven by profit. Right. I mean, they basically gave it away yeah. and tried to enlighten the masses. Right. They they were on a mission to they, wake literally wake people up. They truly were. Yeah. But what they did was they showed 
the next generation uh-huh. what could be done. Right. And then and those guys were much more profit driven and, yeah. and not exceptionally but, greedy. Right. But, but even so, I mean a lot of these people, like you said, were for the most part trying to fund a lifestyle. Exactly. You know, or at least, you know, put up put away enough cash so that they could walk away at some point and then fund an endless summer lifestyle yeah but a lot of them knew that it could come crumbling down at any moment yeah and live for that minute Mm. and those were kind of some of my favorites you Mm -hmm. know and they spent it all and you know (laughs) there's one guy uh one of our narrators abdul and uh and his motto was something um uh, you know, have money, have fun, spend, don't <laughs> spend money, have none or something. And, and, you know, he, he spent it all. He and, sure did. Yeah. Man. And he, he lived large. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and ultimately he got set up by Bobby Riggs, the tennis player. Oh, it's at an incredible cost. <laughs> you can't make it up. It's incredible. Some of the stories in this book. Yeah. The whole, that whole moment with the Bobby Riggs and everything, it was just like, what and first of all, I did not know La Costa was fucking mafia owned back then. It was like, wow, that's even cooler to know. Yeah, the freaking La Costa Country Club. But now it makes sense. La Costa, I get it now. Okay, oh my god. Uh, yeah, and Bobby Riggs would hustle oh. hustle high stakes backgammon <laughs> games for him for a cut. Now, do you think Bobby Riggs knew this that he was setting this kid up or that he was Oh, yeah, I'm sure he was diamond uh, people out Jesus left, right and Christ. center. Um, Bobby Riggs I was never a liked player. that fucking prick. <laughs> but no. he was a consummate gambler. I mean, Bobby Clearly. Riggs was a gambler. Yeah, well, just just a little background story you tell about him betting on himself in Wimbledon. I mean, Jesus Christ. And winning. And winning and making a ton of money, a ton of money. Um, one of the other fascinating things that I love about this book is the, the, the irony of ironies of how, uh, the U.S. military of, because of the Vietnam War, uh, really catalyzed a lot of the, uh, like you said, the capitalistic nature of this business. Like, like suddenly, because the U.S. government and the military built all of these bases and, and infrastructure in Thailand because of the war, there was suddenly this huge demand for weed. Yeah. <laughs> because the guys were figuring out that they were could smoke weed, this weed, and uh, it was way better than the fucking beer, way stronger. <laughs> and uh, there's a great statistic that at one point they figured out that 35% um, of the military in Southeast Asia were regular users, right. probably 24-7 you know, wake and bake dudes, right. I'm guessing. Well, and also, once again, we come back to that Pyrrhic victory theme. By 69, the weed smoking is so out of control in the U.S. military that they have to do something publicly, right? Right. And Nixon comes in, I'm going to stamp this out. So what do they do? They put their thumb down on pot. And so suddenly Southeast Asia is flooded with number four pure china white heroin and you've got farm boys from nebraska mm. that didn't even know what it was and it's 100 percent pure so they don't have to inject it they can smoke it yeah and so suddenly Ugh. they have a heroin addiction plague that for all intents and purposes is the end of the vietnam war yeah i mean that that threatens wow. to to completely undermine all nixon's support because you have these middle class american kids coming home junkies yeah and um, and this is what we see. I mean, now we see with 
the places they were really successful in clamping down on marijuana, Hawaii and Thailand in particular, the people replaced it with meth. Yeah. Because it's cheap. Yeah. And so now we have meth. Yeah. And now in America, we have all these wonderful pharmaceutical <laughs> drugs. The You know, my long-term drug The corporations addict, did figure out a way to finally fucking make their money off well, of it. Well, and the yuppies found a way to make it respectable. Respectable, yeah. The know. doctor gave me the prescription. Exactly. Because yeah. of my anxiety. Yes, anxiety. Exactly. Never mind. Uh, well... And we'll get to this. We'll get to the the, the state of marijuana in a, in this country a little bit later. But um, but yeah, you know, isn't that always? I I find that to be one of the most fascinating things about policy of government. That you know, here comes a policy along, and because we're humans, we don't really know the effects this policy is going to have, and then it creates more chaos instead of less. And I mean, the fact that the, all of these kids went from smoking joints to fucking smoking heroin is, it's, a, it's such a nightmare scenario. Uh, it, it just, it astounds me. And, you know, and especially after them, you know, the Schaefer Commission and everything coming forward and saying, you know, pot's really no big deal. I yeah. mean, you know, it's like, and the Nixon administration knew that. And, yeah. And as have have all the administrations. That was since very then. dramatic. Yeah, very very dramatic. And uh, you know, it's it is it's, because that was Nixon's hand picked. Yeah, guy. Yeah, you know, he's going to make the case for me. And and he went, <laughs> uh, yeah, not so bad. Yeah, guess what? <laughs> yeah, it's really not addictive. Uh, you know, people don't go psychotic on it. You know, and yeah, but it, I mean, look at today with our you know our great president who was a habitual pot smoker yeah. in Hawaii and his DEA chief is up there in front of the in front of the Senate refusing to say that marijuana is less harmful than methamphetamine or heroin it's insane and there's and they're still trying to shut down you know the the, the pot places here uh, because of the federal laws and well you know it's that's all I think in the next two or three years gonna completely yeah. it's gonna be very interesting but but yeah it's like <laughs> well, and the other thing is we're grownups now. Yeah. You know, yeah. we are not blowing joints out our bathroom window right. hoping mommy or daddy isn't going to smell it. Well, not in your case, but in that's mine. True. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I, I live in the South and everybody tends to drink. But yeah. the amount of pharmaceutical drugs, I talk to people and they kind of give me these gauzy looks. Yes. And I'm thinking, what? Are we? And I said, oh, they're on this or that. And it's, yeah. it's no big deal. It's yeah. just totally accepted. Oh, anti-anxiety, anti-depressant, anti-this. Yeah. yeah. And now we've got as many veterans, roughly, as we had from the Vietnam War, and they're putting them on those SSRIs, which they don't even really know what those They do. have no idea. These people should all be getting medical marijuana cards and smoking a fat one in the morning. Because my uncle Patrick, who's 81, who uh, was a rate, like, you know, one of those raging alcoholics who get in fist fights when he drank. He was that kind of an alcoholic. It was just triggering of that. And at age like 33, he figured out, oh, I don't want to be in, go to jail anymore for fighting. I guess I need to figure this out. Stopped drinking and um, and he was uh, you know a Goldwater Republican and short hair and all that and then my dad turned him on one day it was like 1967 68 I don't know what it was and said no 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 you just got to try this and ever since that day he's a man who uh, <clears throat> you know wakes wakes and bakes basically 
And uh, it, it's just it solved all of his depression and anxiety issues. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's something that um, helped him in such a way that I can't imagine any pharmaceutical helping him, you know, so uh, it's and it's so frustrating because you can't, you know, now you can start to have this conversation, but you could not have a conversation about the, you know, the medicinal effects of this herb that clearly, you know, many people in Asia have known about for hundreds of thousands. years, thousands of years, yeah. and have been using it as just another herb in their, you know, their, their, their pharmacy, you know, their, their pharmacies. Well, and they were baffled by the United States even caring about it because in Vietnam, Thailand, and Cambodia, it's an old man's drug. Right. It's, it's not, nobody touches the stuff. <laughs> they put it in chicken soup and, <laughs> and pregnant women use it for nausea and right. menstrual cramps and things like that. Right. They were just going, huh? Right, exactly. You know? And uh, it it made no sense whatsoever to them. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, it it they really you can you look at the diplomatic correspondence and the ties basically said, you guys are creating the demand. Yes, you know we're not pushing it on anybody. It's in every garden and every you know house up in yeah. the northeast so we're not you know you're not right. going to tell we, we don't care yeah yeah well and i and i did i thought that was interesting that you know here it was they kept thinking that in thailand there must be some sort of you know great big boss somewhere the boss of thai sticks pushing this evil thing on these innocent minds of you know people and uh like you said it was like no, we, you know, the locals were like, this is just, this is just this plant here that we have. And, and yes, we're very good at it. <laughs> yeah. And it was the Northeast, which is interesting of Thailand, which is really its own region because mm. it's, it's Laos and Thailand. Mm -hmm. And, and so those, those hill tribes yes. that came down from China originally, they were the master growers. Oh, okay. And they would grow it in the river deltas in the Mekong. They would sex the plants. Uh-huh. And they had true subject matter expertise, where the Vietnamese pot is nowhere near as good as the Thai nor the Cambodian pot. And now, and what about those strains? I mean, is... Are they still growing that weed in Thailand? Can you... Is to th no, not... What happened was it got too big. Yeah. People got too greedy and the quality went down. Ah, and yeah. it's just like just anything. Like just what capitalism always does to things. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or, or rampant capitalism, I well, should say. And that was what was really interesting about the early Thai market was it was a truly limited commodity. Yes. So it was 1974. It would sell out for $2,000 yeah. a pound. Uh, yeah, because it was way more expensive than the Mexican brown crap that you got. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the, the dirt, the dirt you weed. got. Yeah. <laughs> the headache weed, yes. And it was, it was way more expensive, but you also didn't need as much of it to yeah. get high. So it was, you know, kind of even in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what I, I remember reading some of the, the, the you know, the, the details of that, how like, you know, yeah, you could go and get a ton of weed from Mexico and bring it up here and you'd make a certain amount of money. Or you get a ton of Thai sticks from Thailand and you would make like 10, exponentially 10 times the amount or something. Well, there was a load that they intercepted in San Luis Obispo in 1976. And I got a great email from a guy this morning who said, 
you know, ha- they threw a lot of it in the water, and me and my friends got 32 seven kilo bales of it and you know it was the greatest day of our lives but uh but anyway the initially the police said that the six tons was worth one million dollars once they realized it was all tie sticks the price went up to 40 million jesus christ 40 million dollars one of our narrators brought back something like six tons in 1975 or 1976 Sailed it across, successfully offloaded it, paid his crew, paid everybody, and just kept taking the money and see- putting it in seal meal bags <laughs> and burying it in igloo coolers all over his yard. And he called it the Bank of the Igloo Underground. <laughs> and when he finally dug it up, it was like $20 million cash wow. in 1976. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's real money, people. Yeah. Holy. And oh, Wow. And real guts. I mean, he, yeah. he sailed a 1910 wooden halibut schooner Jeez. to Thailand <laughs> and got caught in 40-foot seas. In oh, the, that's a great story. Yeah, in the, that's... and lost all power and almost yeah. sank. It's and, like the perfect storm type of story. And, he, seems... and a great guy. Yeah, and, wow. And he was a true mariner. His father was in the Navy. His father knew exactly what he was doing and yeah. had no problem with it. Yeah, it's a and, beautiful story. Yeah, yeah, and when he gets back to the port mr big says okay go sink the boat and he hands the guy the keys and says i'm not sinking any f- boat that fucking saved my life you sink it yourself mm, mm, yeah, yeah he's a hero mike carter yeah yeah absolutely yeah so so many of those guys uh especially in those early days they were just well and you know you just you even talk a little bit about the culture of just surfers and the waterman you know and the just these guys who were real they they were more than just surfers they were in love with the ocean and they could do anything in the ocean well and what was interesting is where i grew up in santa monica it it was these remarkable guys all came out of santa monica that went and eventually went to the north shore peter cole buzzy trent tom zahn you know, and they're sleeping with Marilyn Monroe and doing this. And I mean, these were supermen. Yeah. And and I have one line in there where I say that, you know, at one time, the title of Waterman was like a black belt in a great martial art. Mm. It meant you could navigate, you could sail, you could surf, you could run a boat, you could spearfish, you could dive, you know, and today it's it's an advertising cliche to sell those crappy stand-up paddle boards and <laughs> what I call the other detrius of the so-called surfing lifestyle, right, you yeah. know, and it's nauseating, yeah. frankly. I mean, there was a real hierarchy and you earned your stripes. And if you did something stupid, you got slapped and dunked and kicked out of the water. And that you get the hate crime charges for now. Yes, you know? yes, you do. And yeah, you tell a great story in there about your own experience. Like you went to, you were a regular somewhere down here and yeah. then you went north or something. Oh, you? yeah. I went down to Baja and uh, I got this nice tube ride and I thought I was all bitching and everything. And there was this really crusty old guy that was always down there. And and he kind of paddles up to me and I'm thinking he's going to tell me what a great surfer I am. And he said, oh, you know. Yeah, that's uh, nice, nice cord. Yeah, that's nice. Those booties you got. Oh, you don't want to cut your feet on the rocks. And he goes, oh, and that cord you got on your board, that that's great. No, 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 don't get me wrong. Cords are great. Every kook should have one. And he paddles away. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, wah, 
like Fred Flintstone after Mr. Slate yells at him and he jumps out of his chair and runs under the door. And so, yeah, and every region had its own hierarchy and enforcers and aesthetic and, you know, and it was like different Indian tribes, really. And, yeah. and we would kind of have the gathering of the tribes like in the North Shore of Oahu or Baja and different places, and there would be sort of detente, and mm -hmm. sometimes they would break down. And, yeah. And it's great. And, you know, we're – all these guys are still my friends. That's and great. my oldest friends, really. Yeah, yeah. And we have absolutely nothing in common anymore other than surfing, you know. <laughs> and I say, oh, so what do you guys do now? Is it crack? Oh, no, no. Oxycontin, that's where it's at, you know. Oh, and so, yeah. Man. That's where I get all my, <laughs> my information about contemporary <laughs> drug abuse. So not across the board, but, yeah, yeah. a few of my friends have uh, – you know, they've, they're not quitters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a quitter, damn it. Uh, yeah, I have memories of uh, – uh, so we used to ride horses up in Zuma. Right. And uh, so, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, we were always – we were driving five days a week, six days a week up to Zuma. And so during the summertime, it was a fucking just nightmare yeah. up there. And I mean, I just have so many memories of just, you know, leaning out the car – being with, you know, my friend Jamie Kaplan, who was a surfer and everything, and just leaning out the car, Valley guys, go home! Yeah. You know, because it was a total turf war, oh, you know? Yeah. And it was just like, what am I in, a 50s greaser movie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, the one thing I will say about surfing that did kind of save me was, you know, we grew up with some of the great reprobates of the Western world, and... I had to get up at five in the morning every day, no matter yep. what, and go in the ocean. And that kept me f from the post-game well, excesses. I, I you think know? my horseback riding did the same thing for me. It was yeah. a disciplined thing that I had to show up and do five or six days a week. And yes, I did it stoned at times, definitely. Sure. But I was my ass and I had two or three or four horses to train and horse shows to go to. And I know that that same kind of discipline for me kept me from – sinking low like yeah. many of our friends did and some of which did not make it out yeah. alive then or recently so yeah. yeah yeah it's it is true it was a um it was an in, it's it's so interesting that I, I love subcultures i'm always fascinated by them because of the rules and the rituals and, and all that kind of stuff and 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 what was i i think one of the interesting things about the whole thing that happened in thailand was there were people who were, you know, these guys were just trying to figure out how to do this thing at the beginning. Like they didn't even really know how to do this. And they were just kind of making it up as they were going along. And then some of them, like your co-author, Mike, I mean, got really good at it, like knew oh, yeah. what he was doing and was one of the guys who you could depend on to do things. But I can't imagine, I mean, during my first marriage, um, uh, he, my ex, he's no longer alive, so I can speak about him, but he, he was, had f a couple of friends who were Coke dealers and, oh, it was just such a, you know, cocaine. We'll talk about that in a minute, but that's a whole different thing. Um, and he had, and my husband was a, a BMW mechanic. And so we, one of his clients was a Coke dealer. And so he would fix this guy's BMWs and make them like race, street race fast. And for free, then we would get, baggy fulls of coke that was so pure you had to cut it in order to snort it and i remember 
one time he was being very strange. He says, we're going to go to the valley. We're going to have dinner at this Mexican restaurant. And I'm like, okay, fine. So we, and I don't like we're going to the fucking valley for, you know, we live in the Santa Monica. Why are we going to the valley? We're st- I think we're still living at my parents' house. Oh my God. I was 20 something living at my parents' house with my boyfriend. Well, you have to see my show to get the rest. But, um, <laughs> and, uh, so we, we go to dinner and we eat dinner and everything like that. And then we're in the car and we're coming down the 405. And he says to me, so while we were in the restaurant, a friend of mine came and put something in our trunk. And I'm like, put what in the trunk? And he's like, put a large amount of cocaine in the trunk. So now we're driving down the 405 with a large amount of cocaine in the trunk of my car. Thank you very much that he's driving. We go to my parents' house and he buries it off the properties. I'm burying it off the property, just outside the property line. So it's not on your parents' property because I don't even know how many fucking laws we were breaking. But I have to tell you, just being in the car and then knowing it was there and buried was the most terrifying. I think we had it for two days. We had to keep it for 48, day, 48 hours or something like that. And then we got an ounce of it for, I mean, just an insane amount of drugs uh, and made a lot of money on it, uh, I guess. I never saw it. But um, and uh, I was terrified. I mean, the, th- the thought of that happening – I why I didn't tell this man to leave my life at that moment, I don't know. Well, of course I do. I was a complete fucked up codependent person. But um, I can't even imagine the life that these guys, like you said, the nervous few weeks. Well, and then it became more than that for a lot of these people because it, it went from the surf culture to an actual business business for a lot of these guys. I can't imagine the amount of adrenaline that has gone run through these guys' bodies and the other thing that's interesting too is things that we take so for granted like you know one of our narrators his biggest the most important thing in his life was his fake passport right if he he lived overseas mm-hmm. he had that fake passport and the most dramatic thing that would happen would be when he'd have to renew it right and uh, and and you know things you take for granted are just you know, life and death to them. And and suddenly somebody looks at them the wrong way and they're out. They're leaving their house. They're moving from Bali to Tahiti or whatever just because they get a whiff of something. Of some energy from some guy that might be the thing that yeah. ends up turning it around. Yeah, and that was Abdul. Yeah, yeah. And <sighs> so, you know, you just, yeah, it's it's totally different. And it, and. Like my co-author said, it it was so he got to a point in his life where he couldn't have close relationships with anybody because he had so many cover stories to keep straight. Right, and it was a miserable life. Yeah, and and it was very interesting interviewing these guys, and it was very similar to interviewing some of the war crimes perpetrators I've interviewed. That they're very reluctant in the beginning. But once they start talking, they can't stop. Mm-hmm. And they've been waiting for years The and burden years. of this, carrying it around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, you know, these guys would talk to us for 10 hours. Wow. And, uh, you know, just amazing stories. I mean, this is such a fraction of – we have a 1,000 hours yeah. of, of interviews yeah. we did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's – the, the, it's, it's such a page-turning book because there's so many different levels of like, holy shit, A, are they going to get through this? And and I mean, and just like the little things, like this, the one guy who like makes that huge scam and he ends up uh, burying all this money in, I don't know, some sort of – some sort of something. Oh, no, no. He, yeah. He, <laughs> what did he do? He ships a thousand <laughs> pounds of the finest Laotian pot to Hawaii 
and he buries it in oh, a, that's right. in a that's big what it is. in a big the grove pot. of ironwood trees. Yes. And he goes and gets each box as he needs it. And then one day he goes and all the trees have been clear cut and all the earth has been churned because they're building a golf course. Uh, yeah, no, Turtle Bay Hilton yeah, the golf Turtle course. Bay Hilton. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. If you've been to Oahu, you know exactly where that is, people. <laughs> yeah, and he had to then bribe the bulldozer crew. Oh my God. And they churn the earth for like three days. They finally find the boxes, but they're broken and sands mixed <laughs> with the pot. <laughs> And and then they spend days trying to get the sand out of the pot with hair dryers and this and that and the other thing, and it didn't work. Yeah, I love it. The line is something like, and this started a, a long summer of girls' tits getting burned by sand particles <laughs> lighting in joints or something yeah. like that. It's such a funny line. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it, like I said earlier, the macro and the micro of this, you know, it's like, the story starts with like the brotherhood and giving it away for free. And it's all about expanding consciousness and, and this thing called, you know, this, the, this marijuana culture where it is, it's, you know, as my dad used to say, it's a, it's a, it's a life changing drug pot and LSD. There are things that expand your mind and you see, you no longer see the status quo the same way anymore. You absolutely have a new perspective on life. And then it just, it's, it sucks in these people in, you know, the, a lot of these, these scammers guys, their lives get sucked into it. They get sucked further and further into it where they can't have a normal life. They they can't get away from it. You know, it's just like the addictive part of drugs, you know. Well, and also the 70s, we have a, the introduction of a new drug <sighs> that was supposedly harmless, yes, right? right. Called cocaine. Yeah. And even though they didn't traffic in it, they did it, yes, and that mm. begins to twist and warp and peep. It's no longer kind of Robin Hoody, all for one, one for all, which it really is in the beginning. And then it becomes cutthroat, oh. and competitive. As and my friend gross. Rick, Rick Overton explains, the difference between cocaine and marijuana. Marijuana, you stand around in a circle with a group of friends and you light the joint and you pass it. Cocaine. You're with your group of friends. You're trying to figure out a way to get away from your group of friends so you can snort your lines because you're not sharing this shit with anybody. anybody. Exactly. <laughs> oh. And it creates the most greedy, selfish, paranoid personalities. So that makes sense then a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the culture shifts and even though they're not trading in it. Uh, they're doing it, which is it's changing the mindset of those. Yeah, and it's a conspicuous consumption. Time, it is. It was very blingy. And, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, and so it turns into you know who has the most, and yeah, who has the most flash, and then they begin to draw attention to themselves yes. with all the money, and then law enforcement begins to get on the trail. And it's interesting talking to the DEA guys. One agent in particular named James Conklin who busted most of the Thai smugglers and was really kind of the law enforcement mastermind and very interesting guy. He was a Vietnam vet. He was a philosophy major in college hmm. and a very thoughtful guy. And, um, you know, and he basically said it wasn't the drugs. It was the money. Yeah. And, and he busted somebody and got them to turn and he started – they the – the informant started pointing out all these houses that these Thai smugglers had in Montecito. Mm. And he couldn't believe <laughs> the amounts of money. And wow. then he started doing the math mm. and realized, like, he called pot kitty dope. He said in the early days of the DEA, they weren't even allowed 
to deal with cocaine or marijuana. Right. It was kitty dope. It, right. It was all heroin. It was all heroin. Yeah. And then that all changes. And then Conklin turns two of my characters into confidential informants mm-hmm. and then spends like about the next eight years infiltrating the big organizations and mm. basically takes them all down in one big mm. something ridiculous 60 ton load in Jesus. 1988 wow and the guys running those boats are former green berets wow and um <laughs> you know we've trained our men well and ironically the people that loaded those boats were the vietnamese military yeah so yeah. it's just you know yeah money makes strange bedfellows yeah, truly truly absolutely Wow, that's that is that is fascinating. The uh yeah, the, the it's it's interesting to me about the that it wasn't about the the weed so much, but it was about the money. And oh, I, the other thing I found fascinating was that because these guys had been living as expats for almost a decade or something, they didn't even realize the shift in the drug laws themselves yes. in the United States. And that's what got most of them was that because it used to be you'd only get caught if it was on you. Like you right. were the person who got busted. You right. were the smuggler then, literally. And then the RICO laws and the conspiracy and all of that. And, and you know, boy, you really do see how the law enforcement figured out a way to grab people in such a way that – you know, it was just like these fingers throughout an organization, and oh yeah, yeah, and but that is so. It was so interesting the first time that one of them realized that that it was like, oh, you don't have to be the guy on the zodiac with the bail exactly. coming through the surf anymore to be to go to jail. Like they're going to come after us now. Oh yeah, and we're not even in the country. We haven't been to the country in however many long years or whatever. Yeah, and and they thought that they were basically untouchable. Yeah, overseas because of. You know, corruption. They yeah. can buy their way in and out of anything. Yeah. But corruption cuts both ways. It sure does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of the evil of money, ultimately. Yeah. Is... Whoever has more yeah, wins. Yeah. Th- there's no loyalty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whoever has more wins. Oh, isn't that a scary thought? And yes. The th- <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, Thailand has been out, you know, the Thais have been outwitting predatory foreigners for centuries. I mean, yeah. that's the only country in Southeast Asia that was never occupied by a foreign power. And so um, you underestimate the ties at your own peril. <laughs> Clearly. Because these are some of the toughest people on earth. Yeah. And um, a lot of people, oh, I've got that kernel in my back pocket. Mm. Well, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love some of the stories of them dealing with local yeah, uh, Le- law. Leck and Joe. <laughs> you know. Oh my- God. The two, yeah, our two tie fixers and the bent cops and stuff. <laughs> They're just, you couldn't make these guys up. Yeah, no, it's, uh, can't wait for the movie. <laughs> Do you hear that, Hollywood? Come on, you got to give Peter a call. <laughs> yeah, no, the, uh, the, the, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, now growing up for me, I mean, you know, and watching the drug laws change, you know, because I mean, that was scary being a kid, because I knew my dad was holding all the time. And um, I remember it must have been 73, 74, somewhere around there, my dad had a poster, uh, of course, because some head shop made it of all the drug laws, like what what were the punishment and penalties if you were caught possessing 
uh, in each of the states of the United States of America. And I remember I would sit there looking and reading these and thinking, my daddy's going to jail forever, you know, because he always had something on him. In fact, I remember we were coming across country. I don't remember where we were. We were on a, we were on a, a flight and uh, I was not yet even 10 years old, maybe 10 years old. And um, my dad, long hair at this point. So it had to be like 73 right around like Occupation Fool album time. And uh, my dad, this is back when you could smoke cigarettes on airplanes. Okay, people, I used to smoke cigarettes on airplanes. I remember this. And uh, my dad would go into the bathroom and he locked himself in the bathroom and he smoked a J in the bathroom for himself, you know. And of course, some some other person once in the bathroom and it's, you know, and my dad's like, hey, wait, you know, give me a few more minutes and whatever. And then the guys keep knocking. Hey, fuck you. So my dad in this... I think he was a big asshole Texan or something like that. Get it, get into it. Of course, he was a short hair. My dad's the long hair freak and everything. Well, as we're so then the, the short hair guy tells the you know one of the stewardesses about this, and then they tell the captain, and the, the, they've called ahead, and their cops are going to be because you can smell the fucking weed fucking everywhere. The cops are going to be at the gate, basically like that. Well, another stewardess was a fan of my dad's. And this is back when they would deplane on the front and the back at LAX. And she says, uh, come around to the back and you're going to come in the stewardess van with us. And we're going to take you to the stewardess hotel. And we all went. It's now called the Custom Hotel down here at Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. It used to be called the Airport Marina Hotel. We all went with the stewardess down the back of the plane. into the, Me, I was 10 with my mom and dad into the stewardess van. At to the hotel, I remember watching Gilligan's Island or some fucking cartoons on the TV. Like, we had to wait four or five hours till the coast was clear. You know, they deplaned. The cops were there. I don't even maybe the FBI was there. Who fucking knew? And um, <laughs> thank God they didn't know my dad's name. They didn't recognize him enough at that and uh, didn't come after us at home or anything. And But terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Once, you know, you knew that. I mean, because you felt it in the land. It was us against them yeah. you know and it was you know it was fucking weed people but well, well how about my uh, little encounter in new mexico in the introduction where that pretty much straightened my ass out <laughs> yeah where i got pulled over in new mexico holding and the guy knew it and searched me inside and out and couldn't find it and finally said you know son we're gonna strike a little deal <laughs> And I kind of went, oh, Jesus, he's going to say, if I give it to him, I only get 10 years. And he said, you keep it under 55 while you're in New Mexico and we'll call it even. And I almost jumped in his arms and said, I'll never do anything like that again. Yeah. And I was pretty, I was like in college and, uh-huh. and the, my worst was behind me. Yeah. And that was, that was it. Yeah. 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 Said, Clearly you and I were not put on this earth to be smugglers. No. <laughs> No, I ran other kinds of risks. Yes, but no. I had. A, I was willing to have a bad marriage for ten years. That was as risky as I got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how these, what these guys were made of, but um, balls of steel. It was really exciting. I mean, they, you know, and working in Cambodia doing the investigations was exciting too. Yeah, but it was. It was totally different, but it was still very risky at times. Um, but I think that's why my co-author and I really, really got along well and still get along well because Cambodia to him was the most terrifying place oh on God. earth. Yeah. Because he knew 
if he got captured by the Vietnamese, he might go to prison. Thais, he might go to prison. If he got captured by the Khmer Rouge, they would kill him. Yeah. Without a moment's hesitation and maybe eat his liver in front of him. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I was going and, and finding those same guys and getting him to talk, talk yeah. that blew his mind. Yeah, I'm going to read your other book now, Peter, because uh, just the little chapter you have in here and the few pictures you have of some of those prisoners, yeah. it is the most haunting, haunting thing. And these guys... What did wait? What did the Russians say about the Khmer? Who who compared them? Like like their brand of communism oh, yeah, yeah. was like Stone Age. Yeah. Com- no, the fact that the Khmer Rouge. This is what blew me fucking away. Is they they wanted to to, to unurbanize their country. They wanted to bring everything back to an agrarian society. So they depopulated the cities. Yeah, depopulated them. Yeah. And put everyone through re-education training. And and the fact that the you were talking about in the prisons that the guards were as much in danger as the prisoners because how many – like hundreds of guards yeah. per year would die. There was roughly 1,200 staff in that prison and something like 500 wound up as prisoners in the prison. Yeah. You would break an axe and they'd say you're a CIA agent. Yeah. But, I mean, the ins- the level of insanity of that culture. Yeah. And what was interesting <gasps> oh, was um, in 1979, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia, pushed out the Khmer Rouge, and the first cameras in Cambodia were East German. Mm. And these real East German propagandists, basically, who had made a film called Pilots in Pajamas during the Vietnam War, where they went into the Hanoi Hilton and interviewed American pilots. Mm -hmm. And in a very kind of accusatory way, they went in with the Vietnamese military. And I found these guys in East Germany and got them to talk. And they they said, well, this was very important because this was not our Marxist-Leninism. This was... Stone Age communism, you know, Marx and Lenin are rolling in their graves. You know, we had to debunk and disavow this. Right. And then the irony of ironies is 1979 comes, Vietnamese push out the Khmer Rouge. The world knows that genocide has occurred. The United States, the United Nations, and China back the Khmer Rouge. (sighs) Because of chessboard geopolitics. Right, right. We can't back this because because it's fucking the Vietnamese. Oh, my God. And then when the UN (sighs) finally comes in to occupy the country, they refuse to engage the Khmer Rouge remnants militarily, and they treat them as a legitimate political party in an election because they don't want to compromise their prize neutrality <laughs> and so i'm yeah i'm not a big fan of the un no so. well it's insane that's insane and it is sad because there are really good individuals within the un yeah but as an organization it's it's a joke yeah it's it's like many organizations yes yeah. <laughs> i don't like groups in general yeah you know? something I, happens I to once you get like more than 25 <laughs> yeah. people together i don't know what it is yeah as my dad used to say they start wanting to wear armbands and have <laughs> slogans and things like that. Yeah, it's uh yeah, there's so interesting about just the the lack of moral compass that um the United States relationship with Southeast Asia. It's it's just fascinating. Like, I don't know. I didn't yeah, it's and you know, our the fact that the North Vietnamese won and you know that we weren't over it. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. Yeah, and that's basically 
you know, and again, it's kind of chessboard geopolitics. Yeah. You know, that's our enemy. That's our friend. That's right. our friend's enemy. Therefore, that's our enemy. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the Chinese get high marks for their support of the Khmer Rouge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that they still deny to this day, which is remarkable. Um, I don't have a lot of fans in China. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be going to visit. Not anytime no, soon. No, no, I can't. <laughs> Actually, a high point in my career was being denounced by the first spokesman. Well done. Yeah, I, I wear that proudly. <laughs> Should be on your Facebook page. <laughs> About author, <laughs> professor, denounced. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, Peter, thank you so much for sharing, uh, well, just your passion for this and, and sharing the, I mean, it's just, it's such a great roller coaster ride, but also it's just a glimpse into so many different little pieces of our culture. And, and for people my age, you know, uh, whether in your 40s or 50s, um, you know, we lived through, you know, however old teenager or young kid, we lived through the 60, 70, 80, those three decades that really were so unique and interesting. Um, and it's so fun to kind of fill in the cultural blanks with all of it, you know, because many of us were just, you know, watching Gilligan's Island at the time. And yeah. So. And, and, and kids these days can't even roll a joint. Kids these days with your one hitters. Yeah. Come on. You got to learn to roll a tight one, people. <laughs> now that you got the weed. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Kids these days can't even roll a joint. I like that. Get off my lawn, you kids. So you prove to me you can roll a fucking joint. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, you can go onto Amazon and uh, get the book. Once again, it's called Tie Stick, uh, Surfers, Scammers, and the Untold Story of the Marijuana Trade. And it's by Peter McGuire and his co-author, Mike Ritter, Mike Ritter being one of those scammers uh, who l lived through this, uh, lived to tell the tale, um, almost. Uh uh, so anyway, uh, thanks everyone. It was a great show. It was great to have, great to be back. I'm so happy to be back. And uh Got a couple of things coming up. Miss uh, Kitty Bruce, uh, Lenny Bruce's daughter, is doing a benefit November 20th at the Comedy Store, raising money for something called Lenny's House. Uh, what Kitty has done is she's created a rehab center in Pennsylvania for women to get, you know, get them back on their feet. And uh, she's taken uh, a lot of the legacy that she's had with her dad and a lot of even objects that she owned and stuff and um, has used all of that to support this non amazing nonprofit she has. And it's just a little house. And I don't even I think it maybe houses eight to 10 women at a time. And mm -hmm. uh, Kitty's doing great work. And so Kitty does not smoke the weed anymore. Uh, doesn't do any of that. But um, so November 20th at the comedy store, she's got uh, Polly Shore, Whitney Cummings and Mark Marin. Uh, performing. And it's 20 bucks, 20 bucks, 20 bucks to see one of those people or all three, whoever are your favorites. Mark Marin being one of my favorites. Uh, very happy to see him. And um, what else is going on? I have nothing going on because I am, I've done, I went to New York and, you know, kicked ass, kicked ass. Uh, was very, had a great, 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 great run there. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I've got homework to do, which, you know, hopefully when I get to tell you my news, you'll know about more about that. Um, and so, Peter, where are you going to be in the next uh, couple of weeks? I, Peter's got a van, by the way, uh, with uh, the tie stick logo on it. And Peter is showing up at surf spots. All You're going all the way up the to coast. Mendocino. To Mendocino. Oh, yeah. 
I love Mendocino. Yeah, we're going uh, Santa Barbara, Chaucer's Books tomorrow night, then Capitola next week, San Francisco, Green Apple Books, Mendocino, then back here uh, for a big old hoedown at Diesel Books in Malibu uh, on the 20th of November. Oh, and, 20th also there. Yeah, and we also have t-shirts. Oh. Very distinctive oh. uh, 70s Roy Crumish oh, t-shirts. Have so, to Kelly, check. you'll be getting one oh, of those. Oh, I'm very excited. Oh, yeah. Oh, check it out. Is and there it, is there a website for the book? Oh, yeah. TieStickBook.com. Uh, tie, tie Great. And um, a graphic novel soon to come. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And check out Peter's other book, too, because I'm going to check it out, too. The, uh, what was it called? Uh, 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 Facing Death in Cambodia. Yeah, really happy stuff. <sighs> Haunting. But you know what? It'll make you fucking appreciate your life in fucking America. Let me exactly. tell you, people. <laughs> the fact that you can sit on your couch and, and have 500 channels on your direct TV. Yeah, guess what? We live in fucking paradise, people, believe it or not. Even with the Koch brothers and fucking Bill O'Reilly. Man, this is paradise, people. Uh, truly. Um, next week, uh, Ben Morrison is coming on the show, uh, a comic friend of mine. And uh, Ben and I have no particular topic. We're just going to fucking shoot the shit for an hour. It's going to be fun. Ben's hysterical. Ben could talk about anything for as I could also, of course. And um, and of course, you can follow me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. Do you do the Twitter, Peter? I have been forced to. Yes, okay. Yes. I, if you can stay a few minutes, I will enlighten you to some Twitter stuff, which will make it much more fun for you. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. And what's your handle on Twitter? Just I think tie stick book. Tie stick book. Okay. Yeah. I will follow you. So follow <laughs> Peter, everyone. And uh, and there's also tie stick book on uh, Facebook. Oh yeah. And of course, there's the Kelly Carlin official page on Facebook because you know I love you all, but I am not friending you all <laughs> because I really don't want to hear about your event or your birthday. I mean, I love you. I do. I love you dearly. But um, when I had forty five hundred friends, um, there was a lot of birthdays every day, and I started wanting to stab my eyes out at some <laughs> points and almost killed Facebook. So, uh, Kelly Carlin official, please find me there. We can have fascinating discussions over there. And of course, find me on Twitter. And oh my God, I don't know if you guys aren't watching, watching this or not, but, um, the nerdist Chris Hardwick has a new show on Comedy Central called At Midnight. And of course, it's earlier, uh, here on the West Coast. And it's a game show with his comic friends every night. And every night is a hashtag game. And you people know about me and my hashtag games. Uh, loving it's a very funny show very very funny and they kind of use the internet to to source the jokes and to source this kind of funny game show uh so so check out chris harbrick stuff oh and another big thing i'm just going to ce celebrate all my friends great stuff uh set list if you're in the uk and listening to me and i know i have about a hundred people in the uk listening to me uh set list is going to be on sky atlantic uh, it's, I think it's starting, uh, this month. Um, so the shows there that we shot in the UK and we shot, uh, here on the, on the West coast in LA and, uh, San Francisco are going to be on, uh, amazing, uh, show set list. It's improv, it's stand, it's improv, improvised stand up, And basically the comics don't know what their set list is going to be. And they walk out on stage and a topic comes up and it's not like mother-in-law. It's more like, um, Hitler's pubic hair or something <laughs> like that. And these comics have to go off on it and it is 
one of the most creative, amazing things I've ever seen. And it makes you want to go up and do it until you realize you would die, probably, because I know I would if I had to do that. Uh, so that's happening, too. And uh, and I know Setlist Tonight is happening probably right now or in the next half hour in New York City at the New York Comedy Festival. Paul Provenza is lurking around the city of New York City as we speak. So go find Paul. Uh, and I think that is it. Logan, what do you have coming? Do you have any music coming up? I'm at Cafe Muse, the new one, tomorrow night at 8 p.m., Muse on 8th with Shannon Hurley. It's her birthday show. And I think I'm at the M Bar Saturday night. I have to find out. The M Bar. It sounds very hip. The M Bar. Yes, Cafe Muse is a little spot that we used to hang out at right next to uh, the Comedy Central space at Hudson Theater Complex. Until they got kicked out. Until we got kicked out. <laughs> Because we would do these fantastic endless shows of like 30 people in a night. We would have so much fun. Everyone would do 10 minutes. Um, but it would be this endless show. Like you're like, okay, it's 1030. I've seen 42 people already. And now, and you know, I love you, Rick Shapiro. Now Rick Shapiro is coming up to do 10 minutes, which means 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. Love you all. Uh, thank you, Logan, for being here. Thanks, Peter, for coming by. Thank you. And uh, uh educating us to all the good stuff with the marijuana. We didn't even get to talk about the new marijuana laws. Damn it. And um, uh, what is your take on that? What do you think? What do you think? You think the whole nation's going to go marijuana? Yeah, I think the, the, the cat's out of the bag. It pretty much basically. is. What's Colorado? I was like, well, I just don't want to see the Wall Street and gangsters take it over. I yeah. want to see the black marketeers that put in the <laughs> to, heavy, did the heavy lifting. To put in the last 50 years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's troubling to me. And I actually I agree. I think the corporations are going to yeah. Monsantoize it. Yeah. yeah. And I don't like the frankenweed grown in Amsterdam and Belgium and all that. I like good old outdoor pot yeah, in the dirt. Stuff that's yeah. got real sunshine and real raindrops exactly. on it. Exactly. Yes, I know. And some of that shit's so strong, I can't even. Nah. Uh, but I'm learning the strains that I can do and I can't do. Like, I've learned that much. And I learned that Dutch treat is really fun. That's all I have to say. <laughs> if you want to play dominoes or a game, smoke the Dutch treat. You'll laugh all night. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you, Logan, for being here and Peter. And thanks, Will, for uh, I don't know if we're live. I don't think we are tonight, but we try. We do. We always try here. And of course, thanks, Kevin. And Kevin Smith's out right now um, uh, shooting his new film. You know, the one who wasn't going to make another movie? That guy. Yeah, he's shooting his next film. Uh, so anyway, next week is Ben Morrison. Same place, same channel, same bat beam or whatever the fuck it is. And uh, and Logan, uh, we're going out with a song. What are we going out with? Friends Back East. Friends Back East. By John Elliott. That sounds like a euphemism for something. All right. Uh, you guys have a great week. And, uh, you know, as always, God bless America. I spent two weeks in the heart of a beast that always knows hunger and never knows peace the man i loved breathed in ashes and smoke but they're quick with a joke and they're free walk around worthless thunder and glass
Drink from the shadows and the people who pass. When it's cold, they get cold, and when it's hot, they get clean. Wake up and start up again. So when the days get all wrong, and I'm weary too long, don't worry for me. Got friends back in. And in the winter, the devil's inside. I've wandered for years, swallowing fears, sleeping with angels, and tempted by God. I've been a poor man, and I've been all right. I told you I love you, 'cause I think that I might. I have known sickness, and I have known helpless. I've known anger, 
And I have known sin I have known hunger And I have known thirst I have known wealth When it wasn't rehearsed I have known evil And I have known good One day I left And I said that I would In there in the darkness There in the night I shook into sleep And I shrunk from my dream And now I can just stay Hey, Kev, it's time to record a new Smodcast. Fuck off. I'm listening to one of the other great shows on the Smodcast Podcast Network. Scott? There's so many to choose from. You damn skip it. There's so many to choose from. I'm on five every week myself, man. Uh, Hollywood Babylon on Monday. Smodcast with you on Tuesday. Jane, Silent Bob, Get Old on Wednesday with Jay Muse. Fat Man on Batman every Thursday. And then I wrap up the week with edumacation with andy mccalfrish there's so many to choose from hell yeah son and those aren't the only podcasts those are just the ones i'm involved with what about the podcasts of smodco that don't feature me man like tell them steve dave last week on earth with ben glebe i sell comics with ming and mike there's so many to choose from hey man there's also film school fridays or netheads or get up on this team jack there's so many to choose from. The Breaks, man. Waking from the American Dream. Bagged and Boarded. Phoebe. Soundbite Nation. These are all the shows you could be listening to over at Smodcast.com, Scott. There's so many to choose from. And if audio's not enough for you, man, if you're just like, no, I want the thick dick of video as well, man, we can go to our YouTube channel, which is C-Smod, or you can watch Comic Book Men, our show on AMC, following The Walking Dead and The Talking Dead every Sunday. Night. There's so many to choose from. That's right, Scott. There are so many to choose from. So get choosing, kids. Go to smodcast.com. Start getting picky, man. Stick these sweet, sweet oral sounds into your ear pussies. There's so many to choose from. You said that already. There's so many to choose from.